This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And don't forget to purchase MMS right from us. It's better to have it and not need it then need it and not have it. But it's so inexpensive. You'd be glad you did. And I mean it. If it weren't for MMS, I wouldn't have been able to conduct tonight's interview. You see, I had my home full of sick visitors throughout the holidays. But MMS saved a day. And also, it's incredible the number of people who are writing to me saying that they have used MMS and everyone else around them but them is sick. Thanks for your letters. But please understand that I cannot give you my opinion. You know why. All I can tell you is that I'm not a believer. I'm a knower about it. And it has always worked for me. You can purchase it at the Veritas store. And we ship it worldwide. And Season 4, or any season of the futuristic metal-cased USB drive, is now available for sale. Again, just go to the Veritas store for these and all of our products. And to get in touch with me for member support, member inquiries, you want to be a guest, or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. Usually at the beginning of the year, we have someone who specializes in connecting dots using different modalities. Well, tonight is no exception. There are about 200 futurists in the world, and tonight is one of them. Our special guest is former naval officer and military expert, John L. Peterson, president and founder of the Arlington Institute, a futurist think tank. This is Thomas Fusco, author of Behind a Cosmic Veil, and you are listening to Veritas. John L. Peterson's professional involvements include long-range strategic and product planning and helping leadership design new approaches for dealing with the future. He has led national nonprofit organizations, worked in sales, manufacturing, 
real estate development, and marketing and advertising, mostly for companies he founded. A graduate electrical engineer, he has also promoted rock concerts, produced conventions, and even worked as a disc jockey, among other things. Mr. Peterson's government and political experience include stints at the National War College, the Institute for National Security Studies, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and the National Security Council staff at the White House. He was a naval flight officer in the U.S. Navy and Navy Reserve, and is a decorated veteran of both the Vietnam and Persian Gulf Wars. He has served in senior positions for a number of presidential political campaigns. John Peterson is considered by numerous influential leaders to be one of the most informed futurists in the country. He is a leading futurist who writes and thinks about high-impact surprises, wildcards, that are global in scope, potentially disruptive and intrinsically out of control. In 1989, Peterson founded the Arlington Institute, a nonprofit future-oriented research institute. Arlington operates on the premise that effective thinking about the future is impossible without casting a very wide net. The think tank serves as a global agent for change by developing new concepts, processes, and tools for anticipating the future and translating that knowledge into better present-day decisions. Using advanced information technology, a core group of bright thinkers, and an international network of exceptionally curious people along with gaming events and simulations, modeling, scenario building, polling, and analysis. Arlington helps equip leaders from many disciplines with tools and perspectives on probable futures. And directly from Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, I'm privileged to welcome for the first time on Veritas, John L. Peterson. Hello, Mr. Peterson, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Well, hi, Mel. It's nice to be with you today. My pleasure. And may I call you John? That's my name. Yeah, absolutely. Great. All right. <laughs> and I had to read that whole bio, John, because it's so comprehensive, and I want people to know right from the get-go who you are. And just to give the listeners a little bit of a background, recently you and I attended uh, The Gathering, a, a, a special uh, conference in Pennsylvania, and coincidentally, I was sitting at your table with uh, one of the guests I invited to the conference, Dr. Paul LaViolette, and you and, and Paul were discussing a lot, and I want to discuss some of the things you talked about because it, it leads with a lot of your, if you're, of your futurist endeavors. But again, what is the Arlington Institute? Well, I'm a futurist, and uh, the thing that's different about what I do compared to what most futurists do, and by the way, there's only about a couple hundred kind of professional futurists in the world, but I, um, most futurists are specialists, and they look at technology or economics or healthcare or whatever it turns out to be, who they work for, and what the interests are of that company or that organization. In my case, I'm interested in the world and where the whole world and humanity and things are going, and the Arlington Institute is a nonprofit that I set up this institution uh, that I set up to, in fact, kind of pursue those kind of interests. And so what we've done uh, is uh, a, a whole variety of different projects for lots of different kinds of clients that are all, in one way or, in, or another, related to looking at, at kind of the basic structural nature of how you think about the future uh, and and then more so, uh, what what kind of alternative futures might be emerging, and where is humanity going, and where is the world going at this period of time? Some futurists, and I remember in the eighties and nineties reading uh, John Nesbitt's uh, Megatrends, uh, f you know, future books, and, and 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 basically he was focusing on the economy per se. But you look at the entire world, the whole world. How does your futurist endeavors uh, differ from other futurists? Oh, well, you've, you've touched on it there. It's what I like to say and what we like to do is, is think of ourselves as, number one, systems thinkers, but we think about it as a whole system. Because if you narrowly focus on technology or, or the economy or geopolitics or some other kind of thing, and you're not considering... In this example, for instance, the possibility of rapid climate change, which would just blow every one of those other things out of the water if it happened in a hurry, then, then you're setting yourself up to be 
surprise. And so what we do is we look at whole systems. And then more than that, what, what I try to do is uh, try to get out of the box more so than a lot of uh, futurists do. Uh, I, I think, uh, and we can talk about this if you'd like to, but I think that we're on the edge of a, a broad-based exponential change in just about every discipline or every vector or every sector that you know of is going through extraordinary kind of uh, testing and, and transition. And some of them aren't going to make it, I don't think. There's structurally, it's impossible to see how they can sustain themselves. But in any case, what you've got is, is change across the, the horizon in almost every sector, and it's exponential. And when it's exponential, it means that it's just moving faster than you've ever seen it happen before. And what that means is that there's nobody alive who's ever lived in the space where this is going. There are no analogs in, uh, for, uh, uh, there are no tools. There's nobody alive who has gone through, you know, six times the change in three years that you had in the last uh, uh, hundred years or something like that. I mean, the numbers literally are, if you quote, Ray Kurzweil, he says you'll see a thousand times the technological change in uh, twenty uh, in the year two thousand in this in this century than you did in the whole last century. Well, you, you, neither you nor I can make any sense out of that. I mean, that a thousand times it, in the last century we went from from uh, automobiles, the first automobiles and the first airplanes, and we went to the moon and we got an internet, we've got all of this amazing kind of transit. And, and if you multiply that times a thousand, well, it, it turns out if you parse it down to six or eight times or nine times all of the change of the last century in the next 10 years. And so what you have is you have extraordinary, unprecedented kind of change. And the only way you make sense out of that, for, for my money, is to really start to get out of the box because science and all of the conventional kind of approaches and the disciplines are all based upon the past. And this future is not not an extrapolation of the past. And so that's the thing that makes it different from what we do. And And I'm particularly interested in kind of surprises, things that are big events that kind of show up and nobody's ever anticipated them before and that's what got us into working for the government of Singapore and 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 some other folks. This is why your work is so fascinating because we live in a conventional world and if we um, in an unconventional world uh, rather if that's the case how can we seek conventional advice from the so-called experts in this conventional world if things are changing so rapidly as you say let's go let's look back at the last 100 years i mean the leaps that we made last year as you said the airplane the car going to the moon and uh, you also mentioned ray kurzweil he wrote singularity is near i always mention this all the time john transhumanism singularity the merger between biology and computer do you see that in the future well, it, certainly to some extent, as many of us are cyborgs all, all, already, we're carrying around looking through glasses or some technology augments our biological and physical capabilities. And so, and uh, you've got uh, stereolithography now that's doing 3D printing of body parts and organs and such. And so the merger between the technology and and machines kind of in, in raised terms and uh and humans is certainly it's certainly in root i mean it's it's happening so sure it's in in general it's happening the question in my mind though is whether ray's got it right in terms of anticipating that there's going to be nanobots running around in your brain and re and communicating and telling uh, have the structure of your brain. And I mean, that presumes a mechanical uh, Cartesian industrial almost uh, uh, understanding of, of how the, how the brain functions. And, and by the way, to use that example uh, that the, that the brain is a, that the mind is essentially derivative of the brain is a function of the brain. I, I ha happen to think that it's the other way around, that the brain, if you will, 
is a, is a byproduct of the mind, and that consciousness, in fact, is causal and causes the reality that we all have, and and that's the difference. And so, if you extrapolate from that science philosophy of science position, uh, where into into the future you get what race with race talking about is the possibility of transhumans and all of those kinds of things. What Ray just discounts, if, if you want to stay in this space a little bit, what Ray discounts, among other things, is spiritual and consciousness raising and the possibility that there are other dimensions and that there's life exists and in, 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 in a far broader kind of spectrum than the, the history and the three-dimensional space that most of us spend our time in. And so... But the, uh, my experience is that that the reality is a lot bigger than the narrow scientific, conventional scientific paradigm, and uh, that and what and Ray Ray clearly operates in the in the scientific and technological paradigm. If you ask him what the social implications might be of some of the things that he proposes, he he literally raises his hand. I introduced him in Washington, D.C. I mean, he's a friend of mine. I introduced him in Washington when his film was here, uh, when his film was uh, coming out uh, and touring around the country. And, and when somebody asks him, well, what do you think the social implications are? He throws his hands up and essentially says, uh, that's not my job. You know, that I, I'm, I'm in technology. Well, that's not a system. <laughs> that's not a system's perspective. Uh, the system happens to include human beings who have uh, concerns and values, and they change their behavior based upon uh, any number of things. And, uh, and and if you're not factoring that into all of this, then you know, then you've only got a, pic- a, a sliver of the picture. And so uh, that will give you a sense of how I look at these things differently than than a lot of other futurists. When I was sitting at at your table, and, and you were speaking with our friend, Dr. Paul LaViolette, the first thing that came to mind was, I wonder if they're discussing the Carrington event. As you probably know, in 1859, we had the, that, uh, the massive CME, the coronal mass ejection or solar flare hit us. And we didn't have electricity the way we have it now, although telegraphs suffered at the time. We live in what I call a reactionary world, John, instead of a proactive world. We seem to not have learned from the past because we have gone through this in at certain intervals in the past. What are we doing today and why are we not doing more? We're not doing enough to attack those problems that more than likely will happen again. Well, it's a, it's a good question. Well, we're not, we're not prepared to prepare for it. Uh, that is to say... And, and this is a very interesting uh, thing because we have all grown up and become familiar with uh, dealing with uh, essentially evolutionary change, with 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 uh, incremental change, uh, all uh, things that you can plan for. All strategic planning is about trying to say to kind of do an extrapolation more or less of what it's been in the past into another space. We're all familiar of the, with the charts that, uh, you know, that show three different projections, a, a big one and a middle-sized one and a small one, you know, and they're all projections from the past. Nobody, nobody shows you a chart like that that goes out and then just changes direction radically, goes up or down or falls off the chart or something because rapid change or surprises or even exponential change are not in the are not our past experience, and so we don't know how to do that. And it's a little bit, yeah. It, it and what humanity is at the place. First of all, I think we're at, at an evolutionary jump in for the species. We're literally in a place, and you can build this going all the way back to single cellular life and multiple cellular life and vertebrates and mammals and when all of those transitions happen and there is a regular progression of when these big jumps happen and we are right at one right now. And so if, if history is any kind of analog for what's going, uh, for what the future might be, then 
we we are at a place where we're at an evolutionary jump for the species, and what the species is is doing is going through something, and I think that Paul's uh, <clears throat> galactic superwave and these the storms on the sun and any number of other kind of things are all part of this. Uh, there are contributing factors to essentially a new, the emergence of a new, new variation of the species. And I'm not alone in thinking about this. If you go to a TED Talks and Juan Enriquez, who is an extraordinary kind of conventional but very creative thinker, he will, he has a wonderful TED Talk that essentially says that you know, our, our, our children or our, our, our grandchildren, are, there are all these indicators that say they're going to be a different species. They're literally going to be, their DNA is going to be different. They're going to be, they're going to have different kind of capabilities than, than are there. So that's where we are. We're at this point where there, there is no precedent. We do not know how to deal with this in any kind of conventional terms. And that, again, is what drives me out of the box, because if you try to stay inside the box and make sense out of this, then you discount all of the, all of the extraordinary kind of things that are happening because none of them have happened before. And so you have no, no precedent. And so uh, uh, what I think and, what I th- and why I think guys like Paul LaViolette is so, are, are so important is because what they're doing is taking a very large cosmic, kind of perspective in, uh, on all of this. And that's what you have to do, by the way, uh, because, again, there is no precedent, there's no analog, there's no history for, for this in, in, in our recent past. And so what you have to do is really get outside and look at it from a different perspective. And when you start doing that, then you walk yourself into, you know, multiple dimensions and potential alien influence and oh kind of, you know it's a whole it's a much larger system than uh, than than what most uh, folks uh, you know if you spend your time drinking beer and watching football then you're missing you're missing the big the big game because it's a whole lot bigger than that that's right. That's right. We have to step outside the box all the time. I think of, uh, uh, you know, change to be gradual. You know, when people were talking about December 21st, 2012, I, I something inside me, and I've followed the Mayan, and I've followed the Hopi, and I've followed everybody out there, uh, you know, Cliff High and the WebBot and the remote viewers, but I something tells me that change will be gradual, not instantaneous. At the same time, John, I think of the work of, say, Robert Felix. Uh, he wrote the book, Enough by Fire, but by Ice, and also uh, uh, Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, where they found prehistoric animals with food in their mouths the moment they became frozen. So almost as if, if this happened immediately. Also now we have scientists telling us that uh, carbon-12 is transmuting to carbon-7 by the sun. So does that mean that these children who are, are born into this new DNA, is it the sun that's causing this change? Well, I think so. There's a very interesting kind of suggestions that say that suggest that the information from the sun is not just just the kind of neutral energy but it has intelligence in it and uh and that in fact this uh, information is uh, communicating with and turning on uh strains of previously dormant dna right you know science science has not understood how 90% of the dna works and so they call it junk dna and 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 in one in one sense it's it's like if I was hollering across the room to you in Swahili, and you didn't understand Swahili, you you'd just think it was noise. And and on the other hand, if you understood Swahili, you would understand that there was information and there was there was content uh, that was part of that uh, of that noise. And there are very interesting experiments. Uh, there's a. Uh, uh, this is a, a scientist in Russia named Garyov, uh, Garyov, I think is his name, who has shown that if you take a an appropriate kind of laser, and uh, he's done it in, in a variety of experiments, but the the one that's most interesting, one of the most most interesting ones is he he took a laser and he shined it on a salamander. 
That's right. And then keeping the laser light on, he moved that over and shined that onto a, a frog's egg. And then what happened was that the frog's egg hatched as a salamander, and the salamanders uh, procreated, and, and you got more salamanders after it. So what essentially he did, and, uh, and his assessment is this, and it's shown it to be the case in, in a variety of kind of applications, is that he extracted or, or captured, if you will, the genetic information from the salamander inside the beam of light and move that over onto the frog's egg and and that same information then was was transposed, if you will, onto the frog's egg. Now, if you're familiar with homeopathy, you might say, hold it, that sounds a little bit like homeopathy, that in fact you spin up some inert material like water or something like that next to some active ingredient, and then you then you precipitate all the, all the active ingredient out. So there is no indication at all that there is any of it there, but it's still the information is in there. And so there is now science that suggests that light uh, and there's a whole lot of science about the, that emerging now about the fact that cells, in fact, generate light and that they receive light and that uh, uh, DNA operates based upon light and so on and that DNA operates based upon a language structure that is like human languages. And so, in fact, that you can very well influence your DNA by, by verbal and by information that, you know, communicated uh, audibly. And so, anyway, there's a variety of these different kind of converging indicators from out of conventional science that support the notion that, 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 the, that the sun could well be in this uh, elevated air time of activity, this time of elevated activity could be sending uh, literally information, activating information to everything that's alive on this plant, planet and uh, precipitating and encouraging uh, the uh, transition to a new species. I'm here smiling, John, because you have no idea. I sound like a broken record. I, I, I almost repeat this show after show that DNA operates almost like miniature the laser beams and they react to light and uh, you know the information that the song carries to me i equate that to let's say we have a computer and every week we see this little pop-up that says you know press the button so you can upgrade your software i wonder if the sun does that to the entire solar system what a neat idea yeah sure why not why not you certainly certainly can't say it's not true that's right. That's right. And I also think of uh, the work of uh, Andrew Cross. You may know about this, the, the Akari insects, this, this, this scientist in 1837. He was experimenting with electricity and all of a sudden insects materialized out of nowhere. And he replicated the experiment. And then years after, another scientist did the same thing. And out of nowhere, insects just materialized out of nothing. Have you ever looked into that case? No, no, no. But I've got a, I got a big book here of all these kind of scientific anomalies, and I suppose it's in there. I mean, that's interesting. I don't know how that works, but you can certainly make cases for parallel universes or alternative dimensions, and you know, fourth and fifth dimensional. You know, I don't know, how, but it's we live in a very interestingly complex world, and we don't even begin to understand it at all. Well, you said it. You said it right there, which is what I think the alternative uh, world or dimensions, perhaps by, you know, using electricity, those insects got trapped into a different vibration and they appeared here. And, uh, you know, I just wonder, what do you think has caused the leap in technological progress that keeps keeps augmenting all the time? Uh, well, that's an interesting question, too. I mean, there's a couple of theories. One is the uh, binary star theory. There's a group out in the, in the uh, Southern California who 
get-together every year around this idea that you may be familiar with, and that suggests that that we have a sister star that's uh, a, a brown dwarf or some that's very hard and impossible for us to see with our technology right now, but that, in fact, our star, the sun, and this uh, star uh, are, are in this... Uh, uh, never-ending dance uh, where they uh, essentially fly towards each other at accelerating speeds. They fly past each other and then they go they they go way out to the extremities and they slow down as they go out. And then they turn around and then they head in toward each other again and they do. That. And that, in fact, that at those times when the these two stars are heading back toward each other, then in fact, they're at, those are the times of the major uh, social and technological and uh, co- consciousness and spiritual advancements uh, for society for uh, on this planet uh, with, uh, of whatever <laughs> of whatever the major uh, kind of organism is at that time, I guess. But certainly. Uh, they would argue that a lot of the information and the advancements in the time of the of the Egyptians, for instance, that seems to have been lost and gone away, and then we went into the Dark Ages, and then right. we started com- coming out again. Well, all of this is cyclical, and and uh, and and that, by the way, seems <clears throat> is an approach that most of science science is myopic. It, sits there and looks in front of its nose and doesn't take a big, long view of how all this stuff happens. And so Paul LaViolette's approach to these 15-year, 1,000-year-long cycles and the Mayans talking about 26,000 and 13,000-year-long cycles and these and these other kind of... A, there, there are regular cyclical kind of relationships and, and events and... and dynamics that happen in this amazingly big and, and complex world that we live in. And in order to make sense out of what's going on right now, you have to keep that and you have to keep that in mind. You have to have some understanding or knowledge about that. But these binary star guys argue and there are for what it's worth, you know, there are some other sources, admittedly unconventional, that kind of confirm some aspects of this. But what they say is that as these two stars come flying toward each other, that as the velocity increases of the, 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 between them, uh, that uh, sense of time changes. The time changes, and it becomes, if you will, faster, or the, or it's seen, or we we think of it as being faster. When I go out and give speeches, I often ask people in a crowd. You get three or four or five hundred people in a crowd, and say, how many of you think that? Time is getting going faster. That you you have less and less time available to do what you used to be able to do, and almost everybody raises their hand. Well, that's not a scientific, you know, assessment. But there is a great sense that some of these fundamentals are changing, and the question then becomes what causes those kinds of things, and I think you've got to essentially start to look off planet for other kind of sources and other kind of influences that that are that seem to be that uh, that, cl- that clearly there are some indications that that they are influencing the, this context in, in which we live. I always think about that, John. The the specific intervals in our past where we had the dark ages and then all of a sudden we switched to the renaissance and it could very well be this this you know brown dwarf that comes every so often because it has an elliptical orbit but as you say most people report that time seems shorter for them that they're aging faster that they can do you know things uh, and now it takes it takes short period of time to accomplish so many things and i can think of one thing and i wonder if you i bet you you have studied this the schumann resonance you know before the turn of the century when we start measuring it uh, the, and for those who don't know, the, the Schumann resonance is actually the, the frequency that emanates from planet Earth, the, the heartbeat of the planet. It used to be 7, 8.3 hertz. All of a sudden, 
1987, it started changing dramatically to 9 hertz. Then in 2011, it went to 11 hertz, and it keeps going up and up. If we are human beings to, who, who live on this planet, do we have to adapt to the same frequency in order to survive? Well, I think that it's self-evident that you have to. Uh, that you have to. There has to be some basic congruency and compatibility with the with the environment writ large, and whether that's not only just things like temperature and and, and chemical content of the atmosphere and things, but it also is more fundamental things, like you suggest, like the that the essential. Uh, frequency, the vibratory rate of the of the planet, and again, that's where conventional science uh, really has, does not does not uh, connect the dots on that one at all. Uh, but but we are nothing uh, but energetic uh, entities. We are derived from a basic field of energy and. Uh, and the frequency uh, of the waveforms is the thing that, that differentiates what we see in physical life. That is to say, the reason why whatever you're looking at right now looks different than what I'm looking at right now is because the, the waveform it is very, obviously very complex waveform, but it's a waveform of different kind of frequencies that are put together in such a way that coalesces the underlying energy field, the energy in the underlying field, and that presents the 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 the, the thing that you that you and I each seem the things that you and I seem to see, and and so when that frequency, when that energetics, when those energy changes, when the, when you change the frequency, when you influence the waveform, you can change the essential nature of the of the material. Uh, and so, there's a significant emerging area of healthcare and treatment for diseases and other kind of things that are all based upon kind of essentially going upstream in the in the energy flow and changing the waveform such that it eliminates the effects of dramatic trauma in your past, if you've got PTSD from a war or something like that, or amazing kind of uh, events or even physical things that have happened, that all of those are, are in theory, uh, and, and there's a lot of examples of people doing this stuff very successfully, uh, you, you can essentially change anything if, if you can get uh, 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 upstream into the into the energetic uh, uh, stream that in fact uh, it, it ends up in, as the waveform. And so, if you can change the essential nature of the, of the components of the waveform, you change what the thing looks like. You know, I can't tell you how many people mention this that they feel that time is accelerating and we just think that we're just pretty much getting old and that's why we feel it that way but i remember when i was in in elementary school you know a four or five hour school day seemed like an eternity and now i probably need 48 hours a day in order to finish a task why is it that the scientific community doesn't talk more about this. I mean, right now, we're talking about the, the Schumann resonance. As of right now, it's over 12 cycles per second. It's almost double. So what it used to be, or what it used to feel, about 24 hours, is now about 16 hours. Why don't we see more of academia talking about this? Well, you know, this is a paradigm business. This is uh, uh, the... Uh What's his name from Chicago who wrote the book and made popular the term paradigm shift? Uh, something of scientific revolutions is the title of the book. And what he says is you just have to wait for the old generation to die. What you have, science, science is essentially religion. And, and very much like a, any kind of a religion, it has its dogma, it has its theology, and, and it has its believers, and it has its priests. And, and and they all have this function within to to maintain the integrity of this this school of thought, if you will. And because uh, in the case of science, 
is that their reputations, their funding streams, their uh, their sense of self, uh, all these things are tied up in uh, in in terms of these ideas that they've advanced and gotten, and, and their whole purpose is to try to convince a whole lot of people that their ideas is the right idea. And if somebody comes along and says, "No, your idea is not the right, not the right idea. It's a new idea," then they they do just like the Catholic Church used to do with ex, you know they try to excommunicate you or they try to kill you or they try to burn you at a stake. And yeah. let me tell you, it's not much different. I'm not just being you know, hyperbolic here. Uh, they will try to destroy your life and your economic capability, your ability to make a living. They'll try to drive you out of the system. Uh, they do all of those kinds of things in the same way that uh, uh, you know that the Catholic Church used to do, and some churches still kind of do. Uh, and so change comes slowly. And change and the ability of science to be able to see things in larger terms, it just flies in the face of the, the intrinsic structure of the, and the metabolism and the, and the human beings and so on inside the system. And that's a very interesting point because if you have a time of a high rate of change in terms of technology and other kind of things, and your underlying kind of values, and and when the values change, then what that all does is rolls into the legal system and the educational system and other kinds of things. And you're seeing it right now is that there's a big disparity between the rate of change in terms of technology and the underlying ability of people to adapt, and, and and in very simplistic terms, you can see it in terms of gay marriage and so on, to where the reality is changing very quickly, but the but the whole ideas, people are trying to hold on to the old ideas. And you've just identified another one, that the human resonance is changing in a hurry, and all of science says, well, so what? That really doesn't make any difference, and... And to try to convince them that it makes a difference would would fly in the face of somebody else's theory who's been around for a long time. And so you just kind of got to wait until they die, I guess. I don't know. I don't understand it. It's not very... It, it's antithetical to the essential advertised nature of science, which is to say we're open-minded and we're looking for new ideas and, you know, nothing that we know is for sure, but they certainly act like it, you know. And the gentleman that you were referring to, for those who listen, who love to read books, the name was actually Thomas Kuhn, or Kuhn. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Kuhn. Kuhn, yeah. He, he wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolution and made popular the concept of a paradigm shift. But let's now take a moment, uh, John, to talk about 2012. And I'm glad it's over. And I, I'm the kind of person who always enjoys the present. That's our gift. But with 2012, it's so much doom and gloom and the survival industry and everybody talking about the end of the world when the Mayans never said that it was going to be the end of the world. What do you see now after the fact? What do you see now? What happened to all those people who predicted the 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 catastrophobia the that everybody had? But it was almost as if people wanted it to happen. John, I used to talk to people who would, who would say to me, no, Mel, I think you're wrong. I think something's going to happen. I was raining their parade almost as if they subconsciously subconsciously wanted something to happen. But in my opinion, it's because they wanted change because they knew that the world could not stay the same well again you make good points Mel. the uh what what you've got here is that uh throughout history there have been a regular recurring uh uh kind of movements and major kind of reactions that are all based upon the notion that uh we're at the end times and things are going to change and fundamentally. And so there seems to be, and people have called it catastrophia, some, some authors have called it something like that, and others have called it, called it other things, but there is a, a clear something in our 
collective psyche that and maybe it's reaction. Some people write and say that it's reaction to some extraordinary thing that happened in the past that uh, we all kind of are carrying, you know, subliminally behind us. But in any case, uh, there does seem to have be, there clearly is this uh, kind of sense and this natural reaction that uh, people have to, uh, to converting or con- considering that any kind of potential disruption is going to be a catastrophic one. I was very much involved in the Y2K kind of transition uh, and the computer kind of things. And, of course, there there were real uh, uh, real issues there. There were there were very real issues, and very much like like uh, 2012, uh, you got to the end of it, and a whole lot of people said, uh, "Shoot, nothing happened," and so it was just a waste of time, and all you guys were wrong. And what they didn't realize, of course, is that all the scenario work and the raising the awareness about these things changed the way people behaved and and they spent $350 billion to do a wholesale change to the IT infrastructure across the planet. And and so you didn't get many computers that failed. Uh, and, uh, and so, in a sense, to the uninformed, it, it, they didn't see anything that happened and so they thought nothing happened. Now, I think 2012, in a sense, is like that. First of all, <clears throat> first of all, you have to. Uh, I don't know. There's a couple ways to to, to to enter this this kind of subject. Number one, what you what you have is uh, analysts or pundits or whatever you want to call them, who uh, are are cross a spectrum. Uh, to my way of thinking, this has to do with intellectual integrity. This has to do with way down in the squeaky part inside of you. If you really, really, what what do you know and what do you believe and how well you're willing to say that I don't really know what this is, but this is my best guess, and and or whether your ego is such that you seem that you have to kind of propose that what what you think or what you've been feeling is really going to happen. And the spectrum goes all the way from people who have a high level of kind of integrity and 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 have, are creative enough or have other sources of information or whatever uh, that they can present possibilities but suggest that there really are just possibilities and that there are alternative points of view and so on. And on the other end are the people who have their what their their career, their reputation, their income, their whatever tied into being prognosticator about these kinds of things, and there's certainly plenty of those that have been around around 2012. You know, I've been on the History Channel a couple times on programs that are just full of guys like this who just doom and gloom and every other kind of thing, and there's just no way that if you really were squeaky clean about that you could say, I mean, at least I can't stand up and say this is really going to happen. You just and say, well, there's reason to believe that it might, but so on. By the way, the History Channel really doesn't want to hear that. They, they, <laughs> want, to, they want somebody to, to get you all full of fear. So anyway, you have a spectrum of these uh, analysts, if you will, who are communicating the information about about this. And so there's one degree of, or one uh, dimension of, of variability. The other one is that that the information that gets that that's available, and, and a lot of it is, comes from unconventional sources, from channeling, and from you know who knows what, and from people who haven't been around for hundreds of years, and you don't know what they were talking about. And 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 so the question is interpretation: is this metaphor or is it literal? Is it talking about some other kind of thing that we're not quite familiar with or that was really quite quite uh, uh, every every day in in the lives of the Mayans, if you will or or the hopis or or something and uh, and I think that uh, that largely uh, that well 
what analysts and what a lot of people did was that they took the raw information about 2012, they interpreted it to be literal in terms that, that made sense in this day and age, and they just laid it out in a, a relatively unsophisticated way and said, this is what's going to happen. Now, my guess, and so that's why you didn't get all of the, the catastrophic kind of things that were anticipated and were predicted. But if you if you kind of backed away from the whole thing and said, well, maybe they're talking about a different kind of dimension. Maybe they're talking about subtle energies. Maybe they're talking about things that are operating on a scale that are not blatant, in-your-face kind of things that we're so so used to and we're, that were that seem to be about the only thing that we that we're sensitive to these days, but maybe it was something else. Maybe it is this energy from the sun that's changing, and there is things coming out of the center of the galaxy that's starting to change things. But maybe it's subtle, and maybe it's but but the changes at the subtle level are great that they are essentially catastrophic, that they are essentially destroying old systems and putting in place and laying the groundwork for new systems. And, and so, so, so my guess that it is something like that. More than that, if you want to complicate this thing just a bit, bit more, is that the best guess that I have and some sources of mine say is that this is kind of a 36-year kind of window and transition. And it kind of increases in 2020, you know, two weeks ago was the, just the peak of a, you know, the, the end of the first 18 years and the beginning of the second 18 years where we're going through this beam of energy that is conditioning and changing all of us in a, in a gradual kind of way and that you're going to watch the underlying systems, be they the social systems or the economic systems or whatever, increasingly become dysfunctional and come apart. And what's going to do is open up a new way of thinking and a new capabilities of human beings and new world is going to start to emerge. But it happens over a period of time. And maybe if you back away from that and kind of just large-scale historical cosmic time, then this all happens in a relative blink of an eye, and maybe it is kind of catastrophic in those kinds of terms. But in any case, what we have, it seems to me, or what happens is so so often, is that we port this information, where you, whether you take it off the walls of the, of the pyramids or the, the petroglyphs of the... Native Americans or whether you get it from uh, the pre-colonial kind of stuff of the Mayans and such. What we all try to do is we try to say, well, what does that mean today or in the terms that we understand it? And that's, that's not appropriate. It's what you, what you need to do is understand it in terms of the people who built, who, who did it at the time and the kind of world that they lived in and how they saw reality and how what they were trying to communicate, and, and that, I think, turns out to be something quite, quite different than who we are now, and that's why, in part, why you get all of this disparity between what literally happened and what a lot of people were saying. And as you say, when you went to History Channel, they, they won the doom and gloom. I was there when I represented uh, Cliff High. They wanted to make it uh, more doomy because, you know, where it bleeds, it leads. They want uh, they want the fear, they want the flesh, they want the blood, and that's the way that they do it. I remember during Y2K, you know, although I never live in fear, I had it in the back of my mind, I wonder what could happen with IT at that point. But, you know, multiply that a hundred times, even though it was in my subconscious mind, uh, although I never expected anything natural to happen, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, when you have so many people in fear, I wonder if they could materialize their thoughts that way. So I'm so glad that that is over because, as I said, I think subconsciously what people really wanted was some kind of change because they know deep inside, John, that this world, the way it continues, is unsustainable. I mean, look at the United States. It's a house of cards. I mean, what happened yesterday, the day before, the fiscal cliff? It's 
going on and on. We live in this artificial construct where money is created out of thin air. How can we continue living in this artificial world without it crumbling? Well, I don't, I don't think you can. Uh, and that raises a couple of issues. First of all, that I publish a newsletter. It's a free newsletter. It's called Future Edition, and it's available. Any of your your listeners can go to futureedition.org, and there's only one E in the middle. It's F-U-T-U-R-E-D-I-T-I-O-N, futureedition.org. And in the last issue, I wrote a little thing, a thing I put a little thing in there that uh, was a, a simplified kind of understanding of the whole fiscal cliff. And what it did is it took all of the federal, the large national numbers and kind of eight zeros away from all of those numbers and equated it to what it would be like if you had a household budget you were dealing with. And the, the kind of the bottom line was that you've got uh, $160,000 worth of debt and the physical cliff uh, kind of issues at the most were going to take $38 out of the system. And so, I mean, it's, we're, we're, we're so, there's such a disparity between, and structural kind of disparity between reality and, and, and sustainability, I guess, uh, that I, I agree with you. There's no way that this is sustainable in the long run. Uh, and, and, and let me tell you, there's a whole lot of things that aren't sustainable in the long run. The pharmaceutical and healthcare system is not sustainable. The agricultural system is not sustainable. The financial and the geopolitical, the political system is not sustainable in the face of what's happening in terms of the internet and connecting people in the ways that, you know, the political system in the United States is all based upon some guy climbing a, getting on a horse and riding to Washington DC to represent somebody out in the countryside in India. I mean, I, uh, Iowa or Ohio or something like that. And, and, that's that. That's not how we live now, and so all of these things are in flux and all are changing, and and uh, and it's and it, and it just and so it's not sustainable. And what it's going to do is open up the, the extraordinary and very interesting possibility of the emergence of a new world, and that's part of what I'm working on right now is that putting together a project to get a bunch of people together to start to think about what a new world, how a new world might look if it was based upon a different set of fundamentals and values and so on and perspectives about how reality works. How, how might you, how might you build the kind of the underpinnings or what might the one guess of how they might look that would be the, you know, that would give you the ability to start a, a conversation and people could start to, decide and, and anyway start to build the possibility the emerging kind of thought for about how a new world could work so uh, I, I don't think it's sustainable at all and I think that we ought to think about and, and the weather by the way and the climate uh, I think we're on the edge of, of rapid climate change but it's going to get cold and it's going to get cold probably in about 2020 or so is the best science that I can find coming out of uh, Russia and some other kind of places, and there's distinct, clear precedents in the cycles in the past. Again, you have to go to the cycles and look at the cycles, and we've been operating for a long time in this uh, unusually warm period, and it looks like it might really change quickly, and their guess is about 2020. Well, if that happens, then man alive, then everything changes. Agriculture doesn't work the way it worked, and so on, and so it's, a lot of these things are not sustainable in the in the world that's emerging right now, and that then drives you back to the question of so how do you think about all of this, and what do you do? And in a sense, you've got to change. We have to all change from the notion that we can do a variation of what has happened in the past, and we can make incremental kind of changes, and we can... It make it keep the continuity going, which was that that's by the way the whole basis of business and government and everything is to provide kind of continuity, and it starts to become more like a baseball game, right? Where you go to when you get up to bat, you're going to get another pitch, and you don't know what it's going to be, and it could go any of a zillion, you know, a whole lot of different ways, or in a lot of directions, or a lot of speeds. 
And what you have to do is adjust and adapt right on the, on the time. And that's kind of a mindset, I think, that you've got to get to. And that's easier said than done, let me tell you. But, but it does seem to me that there seems to have to be an openness or an ability to access uh, intuitional capabilities or something that starts to allow you to make decisions in a highly volatile, highly volatile, highly changing kind of space and environment that will allow you to make some, to quickly uh, uh, change to adapt to whatever is is happening. And and that's, maybe that's part of who this in a human is, is that we just operate under a different kind of metabolism. And what you said about the, the, the ice age, I mean, geologists, talk about this all the time and and they've done analysis of the permafrost in the arctic and they see the layers of soil how they change throughout time at certain specific intervals which tells me that this happens again and again as at a specific time but i have to comment that john i love your newsletter and the fiscal cliff put in a much better perspective you explained lesson number one and, and you took the eight zeros which shows us how it would look like in the household If that would be happening to you and I, we would not be allowed to continue raising our credit limits. But if you could, allow me please to read lesson number two, which says, <laughs> here's another way to look at the debt ceiling, folks. Let's say you come home from work and find there has been a sewer backup in your neighborhood. and Your home has sewage all the way up to your ceilings. What do you think you should do? Raise the ceiling or remove the excrement excrement for lack of a better word i think that you illustrated that perfectly john right yeah and and you know that you talk about sustainability and and, and you're not going to get any politician the way the system is constructed right now to to get rid of the crap you know they are not going to stand up to that they will not get elected they're convinced and so All you're going to get is small incremental kind of things, and that just argues to me that the whole system is is unsustainable and it's going to come apart. Uh, and it may it may just have a kind of a, a rapid uh, erosion, and it may not just collapse, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's not going to be around, uh, you know, in 10 or 15 years. And we have to take our one and only intermission, John, but you, you, you worked in politics and you probably know that politics has one religion and that religion is called re-election. They want to do whatever they can do to serve the special interest. And yes, there's a few out there that really want to look after our interest. But if that's the case, if politics in today's world is just re-election, how can we change the system? We ought to wait till after your break to talk about that because I don't know how you can do that. Very, very good. And when we come back, folks, we're going to be talking about the future. This is why I have John Peterson here today. Usually we have somebody uh, with astrology background or somebody who's a futurist at the beginning of the year so we can you can paint a picture for 2013 and beyond. But how can people become exposed to your work and buy your books, John? Well, uh, the website is arlingtoninstitute.org, uh, and you can learn a good bit about what we've done in the past and uh, some of my books, and if you go on Amazon, of course, so, or, or even from the newsletter, you can buy some of the books, and we feature a lot of other books that of interesting things that people have written, and I review some every once in a while. And that, and that again is futureedition.org with one E in the middle, F-U-T-U-R-E-D-I-T-I-O-N.org. Great. Well, here, we're here with John L. Peterson, futurist, and we have so much to discuss in segment two. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Philip Coppens and you're listening to Veritas Radio. <laughs> 